Well, welcome, everybody. This is uh, Sam Galvano. I know I just saw you last week. I was honored to be on last week, but um, this time in more of an administrative role to help Dr. Levine and her crew with this uh, terrific program. And I'm really, really excited about this talk. I think this is going to be, I think this is the most provocative talk of the year. I really think so. Uh, This is Dr. Marino, who I'm sure almost all of you know from the uh, ICU book, which is really our standard. That is actually the number one best-selling medical textbook on Amazon, believe it or not. It actually is. Uh, not not actually. I think most of us believe it that have read it. It's a wonderful book. And um, going into his new edition, so stay tuned for that. There's also a little ICU book. But then he's got another book that he's been talking about for quite a while. And let, let me just back up quickly and introduce Dr. Marino. He works at Cornell. He still is in clinical practice, as he'll tell you. Uh, doesn't need to be, but he is worked right through the COVID pandemic every day. Uh, He is an absolutely phenomenal intensivist, Uh, originally went to UVA, then uh, followed that up with training at Michigan, was at Penn for many, many years where he wrote his first book, the ICU book, has done uh, NIH funding, uh, you name it. But really, the, the best part about Dr. Marino is he's been a mentor to so many of us. I wouldn't be in critical care if it wasn't for Dr. Marino. Met him in New York, He became an instant mentor and guided me and many, many others, literally hundreds of people towards careers in critical care medicine. And I think you'll see why, because he's such a great teacher, not just a great writer, but a great teacher. This talk is absolutely paramount and central to everything we do, and it's going to challenge a lot of the way you may think about oxygen. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Marino. I I know you're going to enjoy this, and in fact, I'll just preface it with that... um, this may have to be a second talk because you're going to see that there may be some some other parts of this that he may need to talk about. So I, I think, Andy, it's fair to say that we'd love to have you back, Dr. Marino, if you want to give a part two to this. But part one will be enough, I think, to uh, to take in for today. So thank you very much, Dr. Marino. We're very honored to have you here as part of the Critical Care Project. Thanks, Sam. And uh, it's nice to see one of my former interns and residents uh, doing so well as you're doing. Um, and uh, I wanted to thank you for allowing me to uh, talk about uh, my favorite topic in medicine, which is trashing oxygen. And um, not so much trashing it as uh, trying to set the record straight about oxygen. You know, there's a whole mythology that surrounds oxygen that um, really needs to be straightened out. And um, so that's uh, what I'm going to try to do uh, in this talk and uh, what I tried to do in this book that I just published. Um, um, you know, this is a, uh, this is a quote from uh, a, a, a very entertaining book on oxygen written by Nick Lane, who's a, um, a British biochemist that's very involved in uh, uh, using the media to teach medicine. And um Basically, what he says here is that there's a lot of nonsense that goes on um, about perceptions uh, of oxygen. And um, this is very true, uh, both in the general public and uh, in the medical community. You know, everybody, everybody, everybody loves oxygen, you know, Um, and um, this is just a demonstration of that. Here you have um, uh, somebody... uh, Actually, I think this is Michael Jackson, you know, uh, sleeping in his uh, $100,000 uh, oxygen tent, which he called his uh, oxygen re- rejuvenating tent. 
Um, then you have a bunch of uh, college students here at an oxygen bar. So here they're using oxygen for a quick energy boost. Um, if you watch football games, uh, you'll frequently see a football player on the, on the uh, sideline who's just uh, exercised strenuously and uh, he's breathing oxygen um, to bring, bring back some, uh, some energy that he's lost, even though his shortness of breath is uh, cardiovascular and, uh, and not ventilatory. And um, they even have uh, now these, uh, these uh, canisters of oxygen that will provide, you can take a, a sniff of them and it gives you a quick energy boost. Um, and um, there's uh, some oxygenated water, OxyLife. Uh, even though, as, as I'll present to you, oxygen doesn't dissolve in water, we do have these products. So, um, you know, the general public, uh, you know, loves to use oxygen. It's a, it's a, advertised as a, a source of energy, as a rejuvenating um, uh, factor. Um, but we have to, we have to look at the other side of oxygen. While people are doing these kinds of things, um, we're also doing this. Um, we uh, we store food in vacuum sealed containers. We wrap our sandwiches in cellophane. Uh, we uh, we store food in the refrigerator in uh, tightly sealed plastic containers, and even <clears throat> even more so uh, to use vacuum sealing for uh, food. And why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this because um, oxygen decomposes organic matter. So we're protecting our food from the air because um, the air and the oxygen in the air will um, will spoil the food. It will decompose it. Well, we're made of the same stuff that our food is. And so um, this is the other side to oxygen that um, has to be uh, highlighted. And um, if you look at the research that's been done on oxygen in the last 50 years, um, most of it has been uh, on the destructive effects of oxygen and the various ways that oxygen can um, can dismantle us. Um, so this 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 side of the equation needs to balance the other side. And um, to look at what's been done with oxygen in the medical community, I want to start out by pointing out this book. This is a book that um, I read when I was a medical student. I think it's one of the best-selling books in the 20th century on the philosophy of science. It's written by a gentleman named Thomas Kuhn, who is a, uh, uh, had a PhD uh, in uh, physics that he got from Harvard. And about two years after that, he decided that uh, he was going to uh, move into the history of medicine. Uh, from there, he got uh, he got interested in the philosophy of science, and um, basically, what this book is about is um, Kuhn uh, recognized that scientific discoveries do not occur in a linear fashion; they seem to occur sporadically, uh, almost uh, in in quantum jumps. Um, and so he proposed that um, the reason for that is that um, scientists, each, each area of science adopts a model of the way things are supposed to go. 
and the research that is done in that science um, tries to adapt observations to that model. And um, that those models are called paradigms. Um, so that um, what scientists are doing is um, not continually discovering new things. They're, they're trying to, um, they're trying to validate the model that they have. And when observations don't fit the model, it's called an anomaly. And what happens is that um, the scientists blame the experiment rather than what the observation is showing. Uh, now, when these anomalies grow to a point where um, they can't be um, ignored, then you get um, a discovery, and that's that's the scientific uh, revolution. And um, I I think the same thing is happening uh, in medicine. Um, so we have the oxygen paradigm. We have basically says that the final common pathway for cell death is um, is a lack of oxygen. And this is a quote by uh, Sherwin Newland was a uh, was a faculty member at Yale. He was a general surgeon, and he wrote a very popular book called Why We Die. And um, this is the uh, his statement here is is I think what what fuels a lot of what we do in taking care of critically ill patients. Um, so um, our our goal in uh, in the management of somebody who's really sick. Uh, when you first um, encounter them is to make sure that they're getting enough oxygen. So we're, we're augmenting cardiac output. We're um, giving them uh, more oxygen to breathe. We're giving them red cell transfusions, um, um, all to promote the delivery of oxygen to the tissues. Um, and, and, you know, that's a standard. We, we've all been taught that. And um, of course, um, if you don't do that, then, um, you know, uh, you're not a good doctor. However, when you look at what that does, um, and this is a uh, <clears throat> this is a slide that shows um, six studies um, using um, the pulmonary artery catheter, and um, the the effect of that. Of course, the PA catheter was all about promoting oxygen transport, oxygen delivery to the tissues, and um, Basically, as we all know, um, that did not improve survival. Now, what's interesting is that, um, as as Kuhn predicted, um, we blamed the catheter for that rather than thinking that, well, maybe promoting oxygen delivery to tissues does not improve survival. It has nothing to do with the catheter. Um, and and this and this is what we're left with. So <clears throat> so what we can say is that um, really the uh, promoting oxygen transport to tissues has not improved uh, outcomes in people that are critically ill. And um, you know we've been pouring oxygen on people for decades, and um, the mortality in a lot of the critical illnesses has not really changed. Um, so um, we've got to take another look. And so because of that, I came up with this book that um, is, is going to try to change the oxygen paradigm. And um, this book really has, has two sections. The, um, the whole book is, is a series of questions. So the first section is uh, how important is oxygen? 
And this is the uh, title of each of the chapters. So uh, the point to this book is I'm trying to answer the questions in, in each of the chapters. So um, the first section of the book, and, and this is the section that I'm going to focus on here um, for this um, for this lecture, has, has six uh, chapters. And um, these are all um, based on very popular behaviors that we do. So, uh, and also the oxygen dogma. So is oxygen delivery the principal function of the cardiorespiratory system? Is hemoglobin just about oxygen transport? How much oxygen is in the tissues? Do we really, uh, is tissue hypoxia really a common cause of death? And um, is uh, oxygen breathing and red cell transfusions are they based on tissue needs or, or something else? And this is really the um, what I'm going to focus on here. The second section of the book um, has to do with um, the destructive actions of oxygen. And here we've got uh, seven chapters. And um, basically what this section of the book does is to show how uh, the reactive uh, oxygen species um, damages us in a whole bunch of different ways. And of course, I think the principal way is uh, the inflammatory response. Inflammation to me is oxidation. And, um, but uh, these other chapters also look at the, uh, the damaging effects of oxygen in, in, other, in other conditions. And here, um, why do our bodies decompose after we die? I talk about, of course, um, that's um, because we're not making antioxidants. So this brings up the whole issue of uh, the uh, balance between uh, oxidation and antioxidant protection. And um, this talks about how oxygen inhalation is never safe if you're not protected, if you don't have antioxidant protection. Um, and basically, the, the sum of all of this is that um, the paradigm that I'm proposing is that instead of an oxygen-promoting behavior, what we should have is an oxygen-protective behavior. We can give oxygen, but we have to protect the host against it. And hopefully this, um, this second section I can present to you at a, at a different time. All right, so let's, let's look at the first, um, the first dogma about oxygen we have. And of course, a statement from Adolf Fick, the guy who uh, first measured cardiac output um, <clears throat> by measuring oxygen consumption, the Fick principle, purpose of the cardiorespiratory system is to deliver adequate amounts of oxygen to meet tissue demand. This is what we were all taught in medical school. And of course, um, this is the way that we practice. So let's Let's take a look at that, okay? Let's take a look at ventilation first. What we've got here is um, minute ventilation against changes in alveolar PCO2 and PO2. And um, I think we all realize that uh, carbon dioxide is the real control of the ventilation. You can see it here compared to um, the response to oxygen. And the, the peripheral chemoreceptors, which are the oxygen sensors, really won't pick up their activity until you get a PO2 down into the mid to low 50s. Now, if we control the PCO2, there's a much greater response to um, decreasing oxygen. But once again, this, this shows um, the power of carbon dioxide in influencing ventilation. So 
as far as ventilation is concerned, um, uh, ventilation is all about eliminating CO2 and, and not delivering oxygen. Let's look at the cardiovascular side. Um, cardiac output is controlled by venous return. Uh, a normal heart responds very poorly to changes in afterload. So it's, it's all about um, filling the heart. And it's not just filling the heart. As you increase and preload end diastolic volume, the heart actually contracts more forcefully. Um, once again, here we are on the venous side of things, um, the carbon dioxide side. So let's take a look at what happens when, um, when we look at the transport of these substances. All right, so on, uh, on this side, on the oxygen transport side, you've got oxygen delivery, cardiac output times the content of oxygen. So here I'm using 20 mLs uh, per deciliter, about 200 mLs per liter, cardiac output of about six liters. Um, so we've got an oxygen delivery of about 1,200 mLs per minute. If I do the same thing for carbon dioxide, because don't, because remember, when we're modulating cardiac output, we're not just modulating oxygen delivery, we're also modulating stuff that's coming out on the venous side. So if you look at the CO2, it's the same. You've got um, about three times more carbon dioxide that is being uh, transported because there's a lot more CO2 um, than there is oxygen. And this is because primarily because CO2 reacts with water. And um, so there's a lot more carbon dioxide that, um, that um, goes into aqueous solutions. And uh, anybody who's uh, opened up a, a warm uh, bottle of uh, champagne will know how much CO2 you can get into a solution. So let's look what happens when we increase cardiac output. So now if we increase cardiac output from six to eight liters per minute, what happens is we're increasing CO2 transport much more than we're increasing oxygen transport. Okay. And the ratio is about two, two and a half times. So when we are increasing cardiac output, we're not just increasing oxygen transport, we're increasing CO2 transport much, much more. All right. Remember, there's two sides to metabolism here. All right. So the principal function of the cardiorespiratory system is to remove metabolic waste, and that is carbon dioxide, at least from what I just presented. The other point that this presents is that oxygen transport monitoring does not monitor oxygen transport. You know, in all the studies that have looked at oxygen delivery, when you're, uh, when you're modulating or changing cardiac output, you're doing a lot more than just transporting oxygen. And I showed you one thing, you're transporting carbon dioxide, but think of all the things that the uh, bloodstream carries. You know, in sepsis, you've got all these cytokines that are moving around. So if I increase cardiac output, I'm also distributing those cytokines. And um, so you can't assume that um, you're just increasing oxygen transport. And this, I think, is a major problem with the millions of studies that have been done on oxygen delivery in uh, critically ill patients and in septic patients because it's, <clears throat> it's nonspecific. Okay. <clears throat> To show how important the ventilatory system is for carbon dioxide, 
this this is a uh, slide that that basically just uh, calculates um, uh, CO2 excretion, and I, we're doing it in the same way that you you uh, can calculate oxygen consumption. It's cardiac output times the difference, the veno-arterial difference in CO2 content. And um, this is the CO2 content here, which we can uh, convert to milliequivalents per liter. Basically, this is, uh, is the bicarb concentration in the blood. So if we do that, and we have a cardiac output of about six liters, we've got, we're excreting about 15,000 and change milliequivalents of a volatile acid every 24 hours. During exercise, this can get up to 40 to 50,000 milliequivalents per hour. And to show you how important this is, um, the acid excretion in the kidneys is only 40 to 80 milliequivalents per hour. So the, so the major organ of acid excretion in the body is the lungs. It's not the kidneys. All right. Um, the other thing I want to point out is the, the design of, of the circulatory system. Um, you know, when we, uh, when we have, uh, we're presented with pictures of the, of the vasculature, it's, it, it, there's always an, an equal um, size for the veins and the arteries. But actually, when you look at it, um, three quarters of the blood volume is in the veins. And uh, very little is in the arteries. But what we have in, in on the arterial side is a very high flow velocity. Okay. Uh, but not much in the way of volume. And here we've got a low flow velocity, but lots of volume. So you could take that and, and um, <clears throat> really look at the circulation like this. The, the arterial side is a, it's a high velocity system. It's a jet. It's sort of like taking a, uh, um, the nozzle on a, uh, on a hose, on a garden hose, and, and making the nozzle narrower. You're going to increase the velocity of the jet. That's the Bernoulli principle. So the arterial side um, propels blood down to the microcirculation. And here, the blood can sit for a while and exchange, and then it gets dumped into this large volume sink, which to me means that, um, you know, that you, it, it allows the, the body to dilute any, any metabolic toxins that are coming out. All right. So um, we focused all of our management on this side and really while neglecting this side. And, and I think this side is, is very important, as you saw with, the, um, with what I just presented. Okay, the next thing we're going to look at is hemoglobin. Uh, we've all, you know, been told that hemoglobin is all about oxygen, and um, let's take a closer look at that. The first thing I want to do is to point out how much the mass of uh, what I call the erythron, which is um, the red blood cells and hemoglobin, how much that is. There's a lot of it. So let's just take a look at that. All right. And... Um, so um, if you take a, the normal red cell mass is about two liters. So I'm, I'm placing it at about two kilograms. All right. On top of that, we've got hemoglobin. Now we, we uh, report hemoglobin um, as grams per deciliter. So a normal hemoglobin would be 15 
but that's grams per deciliter. It's really 150 grams per liter. If you have a five liter blood volume, you've got 750 milligrams, that's 750 grams of hemoglobin. That's 0.75 kilograms. So all total, we've got 2.75 kilograms. Okay. And the heart only weighs 300 kilograms. So the heart, the poor little heart here has to push all of this stuff around the circulatory system every minute. And um, this is Newton's second law of motion. Um, so the force that um, the heart has to generate to uh, propel this large mass around the circulatory system is going to be considerable. Now, if this system is all about providing energy or supporting energy production, it, um, it seems to me it would be an inefficient system. All right. So the next thing I want to look at is, oh, and this, um, this shows if you actually combine the mass of the red cells and the uh, and hemoglobin, it's larger uh, than any internal organ in the body except for skeletal muscle. So um, <clears throat> it's, it's just a massive system. And um, the other thing, I don't know if you can see this. Um, I can't move it over, but um, let me go back. Um, can you guys see this? Maybe I can. Yeah, we can see it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Sorry. All right. So um, in addition to the, the great mass that you have, um, the um, the production of red blood cells that's required is, is enormous. So the number of red blood cells here, this is this is the normal normal number of red blood cells. So you got 5.4 trillion cells per liter. If you have a five liter blood volume, that's 27 trillion cells. Now, supposedly we replace 1% daily. And um, so that's about um, 270 billion per day. If you divide that by 24 hours, you get about, you know, rounded off about one times 10 to 10 per hour. That's 10 billion red blood cells filled with hemoglobin that you have to produce every hour. Okay. And for a system that is supposed to be all about providing energy, it seems to me that's a tremendous burden. All right. So what is the system doing? Is it transporting oxygen? And this is um, this is the classic uh, graph that shows the changes in oxygen consumption that happens as you decrease oxygen delivery. And so as you go from normal uh, and start to decrease oxygen delivery, and you can do this by decreasing cardiac output, making patients hypoxic or anemic, what happens is the oxygen extraction increases, but it can only increase to a certain point. And um, once it reaches a maximum, uh, its maximum value, any further decreases in oxygen delivery, you start to uh, decrease oxygen consumption, and that's when you get into anaerobic territory. Now, if you look at this normally, the venous O2 sat is, um, is about 75%. So that means that under normal conditions, 75% of the circulating hemoglobin molecules are not participating in oxygen exchange. 
All right. So only 25, only about 25% of them are. Now, under conditions of maximum extraction, I still have 50% of the hemoglobin molecules that are not participating in oxygen exchange. They haven't given up their oxygen. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Now, during exercise, you can get down to maybe a 75% extraction, but that's in world-class athletes. Um, and in, in our world, in the people that we take care of, you're not going to get extractions more than about down to about uh, Venus set of 50%, maybe 45%. Okay. So for all of that mass of the erythron and what it takes to maintain that mass, in terms of hourly cellular production, um, half of it isn't, isn't even participating in oxygen exchange. All right. So what's it doing? Here we go back to carbon dioxide again. Okay. Red cells transport carbon dioxide. And the easiest way to remember this is that carbonic anhydrase, which is the, uh, the enzyme that, uh, hydrates the CO2 is in red blood cells. It's not in the plasma. So what happens is that the carbon dioxide diffuses into the red blood cells. It gets hydrated. Okay. The bicarbonate gets kicked back out into the, um, into the plasma and the hydrogen ion stays inside the red blood cell. Okay. And the total CO2 that's in plasma is mostly bicarbonate mostly in the form of bicarbonate, okay? So why does it go through all of this? It goes through all of this because hemoglobin buffers the hydrogen ion that is released. And actually, the, the histidine moieties and hemoglobin are the ones that are, are capable of buffering. And what I've shown here is um, the buffering capacity of hemoglobin. And because we have so much of it, there's, the hemoglobin buffers a lot of hydrogen ion. If you compare it to all the other plasma proteins, um, it not only has a greater um, affinity for hydrogen ion, but because there's so much more of it, um, hemoglobin is buffering, what, seven, eight times, seven times uh, as much hydrogen ion as, um, as plasma proteins. Okay. All right. So let's look at how much oxygen and carbon dioxide are bound by hemoglobin. And what I've done here is I've just taken the, um, first of all, you have, you have to separate out the blood volumes. Okay. We've got a lot more on the venous end than uh, we do on the arterial end. And, and that's going to be important um, as you'll see later on. So I've got uh, the amount of oxygen being carried by hemoglobin here on the arterial side and on the venous side. And then um, um, by taking these volumes, I can get to the total oxygen volume. I've done the same thing with, uh, with CO2. And um, you can see here that um, normally there's three times more carbon dioxide that is transported by hemoglobin than oxygen. So hemoglobin actually is more involved in CO2 transport than an oxygen transport. Okay. So 
what we're going to say here is that the principal function of hemoglobin is respiratory gas transport. It's both oxygen and CO2, and CO2 is the principal gas that's transported. Okay. All right. Um, am I still coming through? Good. Okay. I'm clear. All right. Um, and actually, this whole idea about uh, hemoglobin and CO2 transport um, makes me wonder about uh, blood doping. You know, um, it's clear that um, athletes, if they increase their hematocrit, will uh, perform better. And, I, you know, that's always been attributed to uh, delivering more oxygen. But I wonder if the benefit isn't because um, you're transporting more carbon dioxide because there's a there's a shit ton of CO2 that's produced during exercise. Uh, just food for thought. All right. Now I want to look at how much oxygen is in tissues because I, and to me, this is the critical part of the whole paradigm that, that I'm proposing. Um, and it's all based. Okay. So if you look at uh, the PO2, as you go into the center of the body, this is ambient air. And as we get closer to cells, it gets less and less. And when we get down to the interstitium, um, it's roughly about 20 millimeters of mercury. The start, the uh, asterisk here is uh, because it's different in different tissues, but generally it's going to be about 15 to 20. And from what we know in cells, it's it's less than five, less than five millimeters of mercury. And, um, and mitochondria can be as low as one. All right. So the interior of the human body is relatively, it's uh, devoid of oxygen. There's not a lot. Okay. And the reason for that is that oxygen doesn't readily dissolve in water. Um, and uh, the test that um, for any of you who uh, cook, uh, you'll understand this. Um, if you take a peel of potato and just cut it into thin slices, this is a uh, an experiment that a friend of mine's son did for his uh, junior high science project, by the way. Take a potato, peel it, and cut it into small slices like you're going to make potatoes of rotten. And you leave half of the potato out on the counter, and you put the other half in some water, just um, submerge it in water. And what you'll notice is that after about five or ten minutes, the potato that's left on the counter will start to turn brown. And that's from the oxidation of the starches in the potato. Yet the potato that is uh, that is underwater um, won't change color for hours and sometimes overnight. And I know uh, uh, people who cook uh, and um, use potato slices like this, they'll, uh, they'll put the slices in cold water, put it in the refrigerator overnight. So this is just a demonstration of, of um, how oxygen does not dissolve in water. And um, so let's calculate. <clears throat> let's calculate how much water how much oxygen is um is in um our aqueous fluid so if we use henry's law basically saying that dissolved gas is proportional to the pressure of the gas and this is the proportionality constant for oxygen at 37 degrees this constant is 0.03 mls per liter per millimeter of mercury now, the solubility of oxygen uh, changes with temperature. It is um, actually lower as you increase the temperature. 
and it's greater as you decrease the temperature. Um, so dissolved O2 then would be uh, 0.03 times the PO2, all right? All right, so let's look at the contribution of hemoglobin and dissolved oxygen in arterial blood. So the content of oxygen in arterial blood is, um, this, is the, this is the portion that is carried by hemoglobin. And basically this says that um, uh, if hemoglobin is 100% saturated, and this is a decimal, not a, so if this is one, each gram of hemoglobin carries 1.34 cc's of oxygen. And this is our um, dissolved O2 using Henry's law. So if we then throw in some normal numbers, here we're looking, we're um, expressing hemoglobin as in grams per liter, 98% saturated and a PO2 of 90, we get about 200 mLs per liter of oxygen, but um, very little of it is, um, is dissolved, okay? So what I did was I went ahead and I calculated um, the concentration of oxygen in the different compartments for oxygen in the body. And that is the uh, amount of oxygen that's bound to hemoglobin. Once again, using these values here for arterial and venous and these for the content of oxygen. Okay. And then the plasma using the same uh, method that I just showed you. All right, once again, very little oxygen. But now if you look at um, what's in the tissues, okay, there's only 10 and a half mLs of oxygen in all of the interstitial fluid in the body and three and a half in the parenchymal cells. These are all the parenchymal cells, all right? So, there's very little oxygen in the tissues. It's all bound to hemoglobin. And um, the other thing that's interesting is that the hemoglobin bound oxygen, most of it is on the venous side. It's in the venous blood where it's not gonna help us, right? Only 30% of it's in on the arterial side because there's not a lot of volume on the arterial side. Okay, now I want to show you how I did this calculation for the parenchymal cells, just to, just to go through the process. So um, remember now, the PO2 inside the cells is, is not very high. So I used five millimeters, which is, I think, a, I think a reasonable uh, estimate. And um, what I then had to do is um, to calculate volumes. So um, I'm taking an adult male with, with a five liter blood volume. And so the total body water is gonna be 60% of that. I got 42 liters. I'm taking an intracellular volume is 60% of that. And then um, I need to calculate the erythrocyte volume and I'll explain to you in a minute. And I'm taking that as uh, with a hematocrit of 45%. So, that gets, so there's the erythrocyte volume. We're looking at parenchymal cells. So they're not red blood cells. So I have to um, subtract the erythrocyte volume from the intracellular volume. Um, so I get about 23 liters. And then if I multiply that by <clears throat> my concentration of dissolved O2, that's what I've got. This is for all of the cells 
in the human body, 3.5 mLs. That's it. All right. So to recap, if we take all of the oxygen in the body, and there's not even a liter of it, um, 98% of it is bound to hemoglobin. Okay. The rest uh, is very little, very little in the plasma or, or in the tissues and even less in the cells. All right. It's all bound to hemoglobin. But once hemoglobin lets go of oxygen, it can't travel. It doesn't travel very well because it doesn't dissolve in water. All right. So the interior of the human body outside the red blood cells is largely devoid of oxygen. And we're attributing this to the hydrophobic nature of oxygen and also to the reluctance of hemoglobin to release oxygen. Hemoglobin is actually holding on to a lot of its oxygen. It only releases the amount that we need. It doesn't want to release any more. And um, I think that's because of the destructive uh, power of oxygen. All right. So there's very little. Now, how do we, how do we function on such a low amount of oxygen? <clears throat> and this has to do with what's called the critical PO2. The critical PO2 is the PO2 at which ATP production starts to decline. And actually, if you look at the studies that have, uh, these studies are difficult to do, by the way. Um, and a lot of them are done in isolated uh, preparations, not in intact organisms, but there are some in situ skeletal muscle studies. And basically what these uh, studies have shown is that aerobic metabolism continues down to extremely low PO2s. Look at these critical PO2s. So we don't need a lot of oxygen to carry on aerobic metabolism. Okay. So what this means is that our parenchymal cells are actually designed to operate in an oxygen poor environment. And I'm going to say that um, that design is done to limit the risk of oxidative cell injury. The other thing that's interesting is we've always been called obligate aerobes. Um, and, and actually, I think Hippocrates was one of the first guys to say that. And really, the behavior of our organs is more like microaerophilic organisms. So microaerophiles need oxygen, but they don't need a lot because oxygen damages them. So, um, so they only uh, use a limited amount of oxygen. And in terms of our vital organs, we're behaving more like microaerophiles than we are obligate aerobes. Okay. The other thing I want to point out, the other benefits I think of uh, uh, of oxygen not being uh, not dissolving in water is that gestation occurs underwater. And uh, what's interesting about that is that um, antioxidant, the genes that express antioxidants, don't kick in until about the last week of gestation. So, so the fetus is developing underwater. It's protected from oxidative injury. Um, and when it's just before it's set to go outside of that environment, the genes kicked in for the uh, antioxidant protection. And of course, you know that um, kids that are born prematurely 
um, suffer oxygen-induced injury in their lungs and also in their eyes. Um, so um, I just thought this was kind of an interesting aside. If you worry about how fish can get oxygen, um, they have two things going for them. One is um, the high pressures that they swim at. The hydrostatic pressures down there are enormous. And uh, the other is that um, oxygen is more soluble uh, as the temperature decreases. So, um, you know, the ocean is going to be colder uh, than we are. Um, all right. So is tissue hypoxia a common cause of death? So um, if, in fact, there's very little oxygen in the tissues, um, how can tissue hypoxia be a cause of death? And, you know, this is, and I know Sam talked to you about um, lactate, and I'll just very briefly go over this. Um, even though we believe that tissue hypoxia is the final common pathway um, in critically ill patients who don't survive, um, we don't, we have no measures of uh, tissue PO2 to, to justify that. It's, um, and um, here we are back at our oxygen paradigm. So um, the few studies that have measured tissue PO2, and this is from one of them. This is a study that was done in humans where they measured the uh, PO2 in, uh, in a muscle, I think a brachioradialis muscle in the arm. And um, basically what they found was that in um, severe sepsis, um, there was actually an increase in, uh, in the tissue oxygen level, uh, not a decrease. It's kind of interesting. Um, so most of our belief that um, tissue hypoxia is an important source of death um, comes from the lactate literature. And um, this is, uh, this is what, what I consider to be a classic um, graph from a study done in the 1950s of patients with circulatory shock. Um, showing um, you know a, a, um, a relationship between lactate levels and um, and the ability to survive. So um, you know because lactate is um, is a prognostic indicator of uh, survival um, uh, in some in some patients in patients with circulatory shock, then um, we feel that you know because lactate is also a marker of anaerobic metabolism that, you know, putting the two together, then tissue hypoxia is important. But if you look at um, the biochemistry of lactate, um, um, first of all, uh, we normally produce a fair amount of lactate. I have it down here. I can't see it on my screen, but maybe you can. It's about 15 millimoles per kilogram per day. And um, um, and, and that can increase uh, enormously in, in, in exercise. Um, for our interest, the the control here seems to be the um, pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme. Okay, so pyruvate dehydrogenase pulls pyruvate into the mitochondria, and um, it starts the you know the whole process of aerobic uh, ATP production. Um, this uh, this here reaction. Um, favors favors the production of lactate because this isoform of LDH is very active in this reaction and um, also because there's a fair amount of NADH in, in the cytosol. 
So, um, but, but this uh, controller here seems to be very important in the kinds of patients we take care of. Why? Because um, things like cytokines turn off this enzyme. All right. And this is an example of this. This is um, an animal study where the animals were given endotoxin, and you can see the serum lactate go up. And then they were given dichloroacetate. Now, dichloroacetate will stimulate the activity of pyruvate dehydrogenase, but only when there's enough oxygen around. It doesn't work if the tissues are hypoxic. And here you can see the dichloroacetate is... um, is uh, resolving the increase in lactate. And here they made the uh, animals hypoxic and, and nothing happened. So, um, so uh, you know, the result of, I think, experiments like this suggest that, you know, that there's something other than anaerobic metabolism going on in, uh, when lactate is produced. And, of course, Lactate is an alternate energy source. Um, this is the energy yield from lactate and from glucose, um, but glucose forms two lactates. So they're, they're basically equivalent um, in their energy yield. So um, the prevailing theory is that lactate is, is produced in conditions of metabolic stress because it provides an alternate energy source, especially when you run out of glucose and you run out of glucose pretty quickly. Um, when you're exercising or, and I, I assume also when, when you get ill, when you get sick. Okay. If you look at what happens uh, with lactate production, even during exercise, um, in studies that looked at skeletal muscle um, when it was stimulated, um, lactate is produced um, at the same time that the muscle is producing ATP. So um, there's no evidence that skeletal muscle becomes anaerobic during exercise, okay? So the lactate production is aerobic um, in skeletal muscle. And 80% of it is uh, considered to be used for, uh, um, for energy. It's oxidized. And of course, you need enough oxygen to do that. And one of the organs that uh, likes it is the heart. The other is the brain. And uh, of course, this, is, uh, this occurs via lactate shuttles. Now, there are also lactate shuttles within organs. And um, in the, for example, in the skeletal muscle, lactate is shuttled from white to red fibers during exercise. There's also a lactate shuttle in the brain between astrocytes and neurons. It's believed that lactate shuttled from astrocytes to neurons to provide energy. So um, I think the whole lactate story is changing. And... um, the other thing I just want to point out is the oxygen debt that we've all been um, schooled in that was uh, proposed by A.V. Hill in the 1920s. And basically, the oxygen debt principle was based on the uh, increase in oxygen consumption that follows strenuous exercise. And what Hill said was that this is to repay the oxygen debt that occurs uh, during exercise. But um, studies more recently have shown that um, this increase in VO2 that happens after exercise correlates with the increase in body temperature that you get after exertion. And if if you block that change in body temperature, you don't get the increase in VO2. So the oxygen debt probably isn't marking any kind of um, 
anaerobic metabolism that occurs during exercise. So the emerging consensus, this is from a, uh, uh, I took this from a paper, uh, a review of lactate. Um, an increase in lactate typically represents something other than oxygen limitation. Hypoxia driven is very much the exception rather than the rule. And if this is the case, then um, there's no real evidence then that we die of oxygen lack. Okay. Um, and here's something that I've often wondered about. And um, if I could get somebody interested in, in doing these studies, it would be, um, I think, uh, worth doing. And that is that um, red blood cells only make lactate. That's all they make. They don't have mitochondria. As a matter of fact, they're not cells. They're red blood corpuscles. And um, the only uh, metabolism they have is glucose to lactate. Um, they have a little bit of the pentose phosphate shunt. And it's believed that the reason for that is that this NADPH keeps uh, antioxidants in the reduced form, which is their active form. And the glucose to lactate generates uh, some ATP to keep the membrane going. And the NADH here um, um, converts uh, methemoglobin back to hemoglobin. So it basically prevents hemoglobin from, from being oxidized and it can't carry oxygen. So um, here, here we have, um, we're, we're drawing a blood sample um, that's uh, sitting amongst what, 27 trillion um, red blood cells. And um, if we get an increase in lactate, we're saying that it comes from uh, it comes from uh, an organ that is not being perfused very well. And um, could it be that it's just leaking out of the red blood cells? Now, maybe in ischemic, uh, when tissues are ischemic, the membrane of the red blood cell gets leaky and the lactate leaks out or during sepsis, the membrane gets leaky. So the study I'd like to see is when um, red cells are um, incubated in uh, a tagged glucose solution, get some tag on the lactate, and then put it in some animals and, um, you know, bleed them or, or uh, make them septic and see whether or not you're recovering the lactate uh, in the blood. So just I've not seen anything on this at all. But it appears to me that... Um, the lactate could just as likely be coming from red blood cells. You know, if an organ gets ischemic, as it gets more ischemic, it's going to contribute less to the overall, its venous effluent is going to contribute less to the overall blood pool. So as it gets more and more ischemic, you could see a scenario where the lactate increases, but then it starts to decrease. And if you totally shut off flow, to an organ, it should contribute no lactate, so the lactate should return to zero. But we never see that. The lactate always stays up. So just a thought. All right, um, the last part of this, just very quickly, um, is oxygen therapy based on tissue needs? And, you know, this is, uh, it's a mess. I, you know, in reviewing the uh, literature on oxygen therapy, it's just a mess. And so um, to show this, what I've done here is I've calculated the oxygen content in arterial blood at, a, at the threshold for oxygen therapy and the threshold for giving red blood cell transfusions. So here, if I use 90% saturation as a threshold for uh, giving oxygen, 
you can see here that um, if this is a normal oxygen concentration, that we're giving oxygen when there's only an 8% decrease in the amount of oxygen in the blood. Yet when we give red cell transfusions, if we're using seven, as we're, you know, there's a 52% decrease. So we're giving oxygen without much of a change in, um, in the content of oxygen in the blood. And to me, that's, this is a telling graph as to the fickle nature of both oxygen therapy and, and transfusion therapy. Um, all right. Um, you know, tolerance to hypoxia. I, I, I bring this up because A, Reinhold Messner is a, is a hero of mine. And B, I think it, it, it points to, um, how we can, um, tolerate severe degrees of hypoxemia. Um, this guy was the first guy to climb on Everest without using oxygen. He was told he was crazy to do that. But what he did was, um, he rented a plane and had it, uh, climbed to 30,000 feet which is the height of um, uh, the summit of Mount Everest. And then he had them uh, decompressurize the, uh, the plane and um, he didn't wear oxygen and nothing happened. He didn't, um, he didn't pass out. He uh, was thinking very clearly. And um, so he thought that he could give it a go. And he ended up uh, climbing Mount Everest without oxygen. He went on to climb all 14, 8,000 meter um, mountains without using oxygen. And um, this is him uh, on the summit of uh, Mount Everest. And um, the ambient PO2 here, the PO2 in the atmosphere here is, um, it's less than the uh, PO2 that we use in the arterial blood to give oxygen. It's, it's not very much. Um, and um, so these guys tolerate it. Now, granted, they are uh, acclimatized. But being acclimatized is maybe a, what, a 15% increase in the hemoglobin concentration. Um, and this is a very severe. And um, there, are, there is a study where they actually did blood gases in guys that were close to the summit. There are none done at the summit. But this is the, this is the average PO2 that they had um, in uh, guys that were climbing Mount Everest just before the summit without using oxygen. So they're 54%. And um, if you believe lactate is a marker of anaerobic metabolism, then they didn't make lactate. So, so they tolerate it. Um, and I think we're finding as we decrease the threshold for oxygen, I know in many patients, I'm using 85% now as the, as the lower limit. Um, we're finding that it's not really doing any harm. But the more important thing is that oxygen is a vasoconstrictor. And this is from a study done um, uh, in uh, a rabbit cheek pouch preparation, looking at the capillary density against increasing the, the PO2. And you can see that um, going up to the ambient PO2, you can wipe out most of the capillaries in this cheek pouch. So oxygen and vasoconstriction, all organ systems except the lungs. It's a vasodilator in the lungs. And that includes the coronaries. Okay, um, and this is a uh, consequence of that. So this is from a study where they gave uh, patients with uh, COPD exacerbations oxygen to breathe. And you here you see the arterial PO2 went up, but the cardiac output went down. And as a result, the oxygen delivery didn't change. Okay, well, why would oxygen 
be a vasoconstrictor? Is it because the tissues are hiding from the oxygen they don't want anymore? Interesting, interesting proposal. If you look at blood transfusions, the same kind of thing happens, okay? This is the Hagen-Poisson equation down here, which, and this is the equation that um, people use to describe the flow, describe flow through narrow tubes. So here it says flow is, um, is proportional to the pressure drop, and it's inversely proportional to the viscosity, which is this mu character right here, the viscosity of the fluid. So uh, red blood cells are the, uh, are the cause of blood viscosity. And so as you hemoconcentrate, you are going to decrease flow, all things being considered, right? So like oxygen, there is an inherent mechanism that is, is, is working against our attempts to increase oxygen delivery. All right, so this is from a study we did um, transfusing patients that were um, had severe anemia post-op, um, and they had a they had a they were isovolemic, um, and so what we did was we increased the hemoglobin here from six to eight, but we didn't we didn't change the oxygen consumption at all. Okay, so even though we were we were giving more we uh, to uh, giving more hemoglobin to increase oxygen delivery, we didn't affect the uh, oxygen utilization in the tissues, okay? So the conclusion from all of this is that our vital organs normally will operate in an oxygen-poor environment. And furthermore, there's a resistance to uh, changes in this condition. So the tissues are trying to stay relatively oxygen-free, whereas oxygen free as they can get. And that our oxygen promoting behavior is contrary to this oxygen restricting human design. Okay. And of course, the second part of this um, has to do with why, why are the tissues uh, restricting the oxygen it has to do with the damaging effects of oxygen. And um, as I said before, the, the final conclusion after the second um, part of this is that um, we need to we need to protect uh, our patients from oxygen and not just promote it um, and and that's the that's the change in the uh, in the paradigm we need to go from an oxygen promoting to an oxygen protecting um, strategy and I'd hope to be able to uh, deliver the second part to you sometime so this all makes sense. Thank you.